0: We hit the tasting. We hit the tasting. Right, tasting is a very important thing. Yeah, very the important thing I know. most about wine <laughs> is, is, it is, is the tasting. Welcome back to another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So episode 63 welcome back so this episode features Sarah Heller Sarah is an MW based in Hong Kong Uh, she is the youngest MW in uh, the Asia Pacific region Uh, she writes for a a wine uh, magazine called Tatler and actually she just finished this great article with basically it's basically like an introduction to champagne she uh she's got so many projects going right now she uh just finished collaborating a, a, a design on uh, different wine glasses with uh, lucaris crystal uh, she is on the faculty uh, for the vinitoli uh, academy which focuses on italian wines and uh basically her, her first love of wines is, is italian wines um, she is uh someone who also is a television host for uh, a wine series as well uh so she's got a lot of things going on um she also does these very sure so her original before wine her original um her original passion was art and uh she went to yale actually for fine arts so she created these visual tasting notes so if you check out her website sarahheller.com or you check out her instagram which is Sarah Heller, you'll find these very cool visual tasting notes, uh, which uh, really puts a an artistic interpretation to, to wine. So we sit down and we chat about how she got into wine in the first place, um, some of her projects she's got going on, and it's kind of funny as well because we kind of as I talk to different people throughout the world, and I kind of get a bit of a, you know, anecdotal evidence on what different wine cultures and wine wine regions are doing, uh, it's kind of funny because um, Sarah, a lot of Sarah's experiences recently is very Hong Kong based, so her wine market is is mostly the Hong Kong market. So um, it's always interesting to reference between what I see in Vancouver and, and the West Coast and what others are telling me and um and then of course what she's seen as well in her area so uh we hit a wide range of topics and um it's great hearing you know hearing her perspective and what's going on in, in hong kong and what's going on in mainland china and some of the some of the talk is around the domestic wines of china and uh what her what her you know micro you know the micro wine culture that she sees in, in Hong Kong is doing it, and and relating that to what other wine regions are are, are showing or are telling. So uh, yeah, let's um, let's get right into it. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. Let's let's put it to you that way. Um, but I figured we'd start kind of at the start and. You went to Yale for fine arts, but then yeah, you you right. decided to switch, or not switch, but you decided to take like a gap semester and get into into culinary, and that kind of kind of got your creative juices going for for wine and food.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, growing up in Hong Kong, um, most well, a lot of people don't learn to cook at home. This is big culture of eating out, um, and then lot of people have domestic help at home so you don't learn to cook when I went to college um I finally had to fend for myself a little bit and um and actually found I loved cooking um, so I started taking courses at the French Culinary Institute and really i got got excited about the idea of being a chef and it was right it was um in the period when um Top Chef was really popular and right? it just started to kind of um build some build some momentum. And so I had this idea of becoming a chef. My parents were not so enthused. Um, and so when I sort of said to them, look, I've, I've gotten enough course credits that I could take a semester off um, without actually having to delay graduation and I'd like to do the French Culinary Institute six month program. They're like, well, why don't you go work in a restaurant first? And if you still like it, we'll, we'll support you through culinary school, um, which I think was very sensible on their part. Because I then ended up working in a restaurant in Italy, and it wasn't—it wasn't actually that working in a restaurant was so onerous. Just that I ended up getting interested in wine, largely because my chef was so into wine. So every weekend, almost, we'd be driving around the countryside, tasting Barolo, tasting Barbaresco. Um, and so it just was extremely seductive. And after I got back to school, um, I was completely a wine person and not really, not really so into cooking anymore.
0: How did you, how did you think of transforming your kind of, you know, your, your artistic senses into visual tasting notes? Like I, like, I just find that fascinating how you kind of take, took your, your artistic, um, you know, talents and decided to kind of explore that, that Avenue.
1: Thank you. You know, I think it was a combination of factors. One was that studying from the master of wine, Um, the method of tasting and the way that you communicate is so rigorously objective. Um, it kind of, I mean, without, uh, without in any way detracting from the program, it just, it kind of took away a lot of the magic of wine for me. So I was on the lookout for some way of communicating about wine that was a bit more lyrical, a little bit less, um, kind of cold and soulless um, not to put too fine a point on it. And then I knew that I had kind of a way of working um, visually that was somewhat unique within the industry. And I, I mean, I initially looked at different infographics and things and I had to, I had to kind of remind myself, look, you're not a graphic designer. And this, this, um, this comes up again and again, I'm not, I'm really not, that's not my area of expertise, but the thing that I think, I had that differentiates the work that I'm doing from a lot of the kind of amazing visual tools that people like Wine Folly put out is that it's, um, it's very personal and it's comfortable living in that space, being more evocative and sort of suggestive rather than trying to communicate clearly. I think we place too much, too much emphasis sometimes on communicating things with clarity and we lose the magic which is which is so much of what wine is about, which is what really wins people over um, about wine.
0: Uh, that's interesting you say that because um, I I completely agree because especially with wine folly and the work that Madeline has, has been doing with just grabbing that visual side of uh, describing wine and just adding that kind of visual component to it, um, I'm a big fan. I, I had her on ages ago, and uh, I'm a big fan. I actually have the wine glass that she that they created as part of their package when they when she released her second uh, second book. I'm mm-hmm. actually am tasting out of it right now. As a matter of fact, very cool. Yeah, um, which will be another topic uh, after which is to talk about um, the wine glasses and stuff that um, that you're involved in. We'll we'll chat about that in a bit. Cause it just remind it just remind me of that. It's funny. So it's funny you're saying that about about what the MWs with being so clinical. And I had Jason Wise on, who's the the you know the Psalm Films director. Mm-hmm. And that's a fun, that's always a funny conversation between the MS program and the MW program, and and kind of the the work that goes in and the. Uh, it's always funny because you you hear people talking very clinically about wines and stuff, and then at some point they say, by the way, the wine's delicious, but I have to be clinical. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like, let's not forget the fact that this wine is amazing, but I'm, I'm having to kind of dissect it, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think that absolutely has its place in wine education, and um, that, that's fine for me. It was just like after having achieved that, I wanted, I wanted to get the magic back for myself a little bit as much as anything else.
0: No, yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree, and, and um, with the MW because I, f- I, I, find that, in comparison, I find it is very, theor- like very theory theory driven, with the papers and the, the focus on viticulture, and it seems to be very, um, very theory driven.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. There, there, there's certainly, um, there's a lot of theoretical information that you need to that you need to sort of absorb and really um, understand. I think, I think for me, the big distinction between, say the WSAT diploma, um, which is kind of the precursor right, to that master of wine, and the way that you have to study for the master of wine is that you have to have that foundation of theoretical knowledge, but you have to have a kind of in your bones understanding of how that theory is applied in the real world. Right? Mm-hmm. So we have to have up to the moment examples how theoretical practices are being applied around the world in viticulture, in, in winemaking. Um, and then the, the tasting is all about kind of assimilating that, um, that theoretical information and then linking that to the physical facts that you find in the wine. So, I mean, I'm pretty, I, I have a lot of respect for the way that the program is structured and I wouldn't what, what I'm saying is definitely not to uh, in any way suggest that I would change the way the program is taught. It's just um, post-education. I think people, people are looking for, for different ways of communicating and, and some of it is much looser and kind of, uh, I don't want to say poetic, but um, yeah, impressionistic, evocative.
0: Well, and especially if, if, You get a lot more hands on if you are a person who is, I mean, there's so many different ways to be, to be educated these days as well, right? There's the people learn in different ways. And for a lot of people, they really need to get their, their feet wet for lack of a better term. Uh, And you kind of, depending on what you, I mean, depending on what you want to do with your, with your education, your career, right. As well, I guess that's the other side of it is where, where you take it, right. Like where a person takes that knowledge or takes that, that um that credential too right
1: yeah absolutely i mean the thing i appreciate with the Master of wine is that it kind of the idea is that it prepares you to go into any fields in wine actually ironically pl- probably the main thing it doesn't prepare you to do is be a be a song which is which is why the the master song is such a separate track because i for example have no none of the physical grace required to to pass any of the uh, the court exams um, in terms of being able to open a bottle elegantly, pour elegantly. These are all outside of my skill set, unfortunately. Um, but otherwise, there's definitely, um, with the, with the winemaking theory, and also, I think, especially in the, in the before times, right, when we could actually travel to places, um, there was an expectation that if you were studying for the MW, you would take time to visit wine regions, spend time, ideally dur- during a harvest or two, help out with pruning, just get some hands-on experience so that you can really speak with authority when you're, when you're writing these papers, because it's, it's, it's really not meant to be principally theoretical.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think, like, I always look at my, my wine education, and if I was to ever try and advance, I always felt the same way, like, I, you know, uh, I'm the worst guy for opening a bottle, you know, or, or like you said, doing something with a flourish. But when it comes to the winemaking side or the viticulture side, I've always been fascinated with that. And uh, a lot of the guys I've talked to, you know, over the last couple of years and guys that I've visited and stuff, that would be something that would be completely intriguing to me as opposed to being in a restaurant and making recommendations and, uh, and kind of that side of, I'd rather be uh, in the field or, you know, kind of tasting and testing and that kind of stuff
1: yeah that is the wonderful thing about the wine industry that really accommodates so many different personality types different interests um, yeah I mean in a way people ask me why I've stayed with wine so long and is it's in, in a way it's like a lens a lens to learn virtually anything that you want to learn
0: there was another question I had and I just I just I just lost it but give me one second
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> not to worry
0: it's funny do you know who um uh, Abe Schoner is.
1: Um, I'm not sure that I do. Um,
0: he runs um, he runs um Scolium wines. he's is in Lodi, California. He's a big natural uh, wine guy down there.
1: Yes, I' you know the whole California um, I guess I guess you'd call it Renaissance has kind of happened in the time, or is really, I guess flourished in the time since I've left the u s. And so I feel, I kind of have this awareness of all of these names and I've, I've tried a handful of the wines, but I really haven't, haven't taken the opportunity at any point to, to get in deep with those wines. I'd, I'd really love to It's uh, not yet really a thing here in Hong Kong. I'd say the California wine that people are into here is very much kind of old, right. old school Napa or like really mature Napa, mature Ridge, um, so I don't I don't get to hear as much about these cooler cooler newer producers. So mm. I don't have to say that Ridge isn't cool,
0: but he was a philosophy professor so he he was someone you just, you, you catch me unaware when you when you stop talking because I just get I got enraptured what you were saying and he was he was <laughs> someone who was like he'd be talking about something you just get you just get sucked in and then you're like he stops talking and you're like oh oh well wait
1: oh, my turn, <laughs> my <laughs> no. turn.
0: Right what was my question? Oh no, I didn't have anything written down. Oh.
1: <laughs> well, it means you're really listening.
0: That's, yeah, exactly. It's funny you're talking about because well, when I asked you about some of the some of the wine uh, consumption in Hong Kong and and the mainland uh, and stuff, and you would mentioned a few, you mentioned some, and it's it's funny you're saying about Napa Cab and stuff because there's some stuff that I guess regardless of where you're on the are in the world that will always be something that's on people's people's radar like Napa Cab or, or Bordeaux or, or what have you mm-hmm.
1: yeah very much so I mean Hong Kong Hong Kong which is where I'm primarily based um is not it it's funny it it is a trendy market in certain ways it's like restaurants we have I can't tell you how many openings recently. It's been just non-stop, I think, because people nobody can travel, so everybody's just looking for new ways to keep entertained. Um, but in our wine tastes can be quite ironically quite conservative, right? So the big shift that happened when I arrived um back home in 2010 was that everybody at that point was still very much Bordeaux. Um, Bordeaux, Bordeaux, toujours Bordeaux. And then I, it probably three or four years into my being back home, it suddenly was all about Burgundy, and the the sort of um, the complete dismissal of anything that wasn't Burgundy. Right? So you could be bringing an incredible Pomerol to dinner, and people are like, "Oh, what? The, that's not Burgundy." And there there is a there is a sort of reluctance to to branch out and and try try things that might um, that you'd have to go out on a limb for and be the person sticking out their neck saying, you know, I know this isn't Bordeaux or Burgundy, but um, it's amazing. There's there's a there's a discomfort with that here. I would say that's that's a bit disheartening. There is there is now starting to be more energy around Italian wine, which I'm super excited about. As somebody who was um, originally an Italian specialist and continue to focus on Italy, so to see. Kind of leaps and bounds that are happening in that space with people really, I think, in large part thanks to the Vin Italy International Program, which I've been involved with since 2018, um, but started a number of years before that. There's, there's just quite a lot of enthusiasm, actually, among a very, admittedly, a very niche group, but um, for Italian native grape varieties here, um, and the availability of wines um, in that category here has just exploded. So it's it's we're actually... Potentially in the middle of a shift to to maybe broader broader palettes in Hong Kong.
0: Interesting, and I'll I'll ask you about the domestic wine in a in a second. But that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, is, is it because it's safe? It's just the just, just trying to keep with those safe varieties or those safe regions, and no one's willing to explore. Or because I, I would have thought like, given your your proximity to Australia as well, and the the kind of emergence of, of good Australian wine in the last decade or whatever, I would have thought there's other regions, even Argentina or, or, you know, other, other South Africa or whatever. Like you would, is it just the safeness of, of things like Bordeaux and Burgundy?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to, I don't want to present a diso- distorted image because Hong Kong is a tax-free wine hub in Asia. You can find virtually any wine from anywhere here. Um, it's, barely an exaggeration. I mean, China increasingly also partly because wine is so available online. You can, you can find more or less anything that you want to find. So it's not to say that there's no market for particularly Australia. I mean, Australia was the, the number one supplier of wine into China for a number of years, obviously not, not at the moment, but um, it's more, it's more a matter of what people are willing to collect and identify with. So I think people are somewhat comfortable with the idea of drinking casually wines from all over the place. And there definitely are people who are big Australian wine drinkers and collectors, big California drinkers and collectors. I would say significantly fewer from say South America or really anywhere outside of those two main um, New World countries, Australia and uh, the US. I'd say it's, it's Hong Kong's collector culture is really dominated originally by Bordeaux, which kind of goes back to, you know, at the, the 90s, the 80s even, um, when people were just starting to build collections. And now Burgundy, which is, which is generally a younger generation, people more in their 30s, 40s, and maybe 50s versus the Bordeaux crowd, which w- would generally be older than that. I think what it comes from is the way that wine is consumed here. So people don't, didn't historically drink very much at home, particularly with their families. I think in a lot of families, it was only the the patriarch who would drink typically. And so he would then take his wine out to drink in restaurants with a group of friends. And in that context, people are just not particularly comfortable being the person who has brought along something, overly uh, unusual, right? People want to, it, it, as much as anything, as a sign of respect for the people that you've gone to dinner with. You want to say, you know, I value you. I've brought something that you know the value of, right? This is pre-Wine Searcher days, right? You know that a 1st growth Bordeaux is worth a certain amount. And so it's a, it's a sign of how much you value the other people that you're out to dinner with.
0: That's interesting. And I think also... Um, you could you could say it's also safe in the sense that you're not going to be surprised from tasting as well. Like there's going to be yeah. going to be very straightforward. It's not going to be some crazy grape variety that uh, mm-hmm. you know someone doesn't know or tastes different than what they're expecting. Because that's I, I, I belong to a wine club that we get offerings from around the world, and mm-hmm. in, in some regards, I value trying grapes that i've never tried before but also the same regard you know if you try and bring that to a party and someone's someone doesn't know that grape variety doesn't matter what you say what you say you know they may be (laughs) hesitant right
1: yeah yeah exactly It's, it's so many things right the names you want to be able to say the name without fumbling you want to be able to talk you don't want to have to explain what the grape variety is um you want people to know the value of the wine that you've brought for them, so it's a uh, it's kind of an un- understandable instinct to be honest, but um, i do I do now see sort of the reverse starting to happen where there are some admittedly very limited circles where it's a uh, the competition is who can bring something that nobody's heard of mm. um, and that that happens I think in in uh, regions where being a new producer or a niche producer is more celebrated, right? I think that's less the case in Bordeaux as a general rule and maybe more interesting in Burgundy and in Champagne.
0: Is that something also with, um, with the younger crowd, with the millennials and the kind of the newer, the newer generations getting, getting into wine? Is that because of the, availability through social media, being able to look, look up producers and look up if you want to see what, what, you know, what you're, what you're drinking or what it's all about and, and kind of find out more about that person or, or about that, their brand or their, their identity is so easy nowadays.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think social media has had an impact just the generally the availability of information and the accessibility of information, Um, the availability of a lot more information in uh, Mandarin in mainland China has obviously really bolstered um, wine knowledge. The WSET should, deserves a lot of credit for introducing people to at least the names of or has some awareness of different wine regions they would otherwise never have even you know thought to, thought to try out. If somebody's read about it, at least in a WSET textbook, they're that much more likely to give it a try. And so... Yeah, I think with the younger generation, there's definitely been a shift away from the safe, the, the dare I say it, boring, right? In, in the direction of trying to do ever more unusual, um, find something where, where you found um, something geekier or more exclusive in the, not, not necessarily in an expense sense, but just in terms of limited production quantity or, or availability in the market. Um, Compared
0: to your friends, yeah, I've got nothing but great things to say about uh, WSWSG because even for the average wine enthusiast, not even necessarily related to uh, occupation or whatever, that just people taking the WSET one, WSET two, that kind of stuff, and, and just kind of getting a bit of a a null, a base of knowledge, you know, not even necessarily related to uh, to work or whatever. They're just getting that trying to get some knowledge, right? So that they can kind of, they're just into wine and they want to learn a little bit more.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so, so different from the way that um, kind of wine connoisseurs, I think in, in the world in general, but particularly I think about in this region, would have learned about wine before, which was basically to go either with a parent or sort of a trusted mentor along to a wine dinner where you are encountering only the very best wines, right? The first grade Bordeaux, um, some Pomerol, some saint and then just learning about wine through the chateau and not not necessarily even having that much awareness about um, other regions outside of the regions that, that people were focusing on. Yeah, so if you can imagine going from that to a sort of a mode of instruction where it's really starts out with how wine is made, um, you know, the components of the grape, um, different grape varieties. It's just a complete, complete shift in mindsets So it'll be fascinating to see how that plays out over the next couple of decades.
0: Well, or and even not just Debbie set, but even um like we are talking about Madeline Madeline and, and wine folly and just that online presence with mm-hmm. online, you know, wine courses and, and online wine content and and how comfortable and safe it is for people to just learn at home and how much great knowledge there is out there.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I think, I think of all of these different educational tools as, as sort of in that realm of objectivity, right? It's sort of trying to present the information in as unbiased uh, a mode as possible as if like, I, the thing that I always find fascinating with, Madeline's charts, for instance, right, is it's kind of trying to create an, an archetype of a particular grape variety, right? Like you will find this and that. Um, you will find these spice elements and these fruit flavors. And this is not at all a criticism, but it's just that I think is a really important phase for people in their learning to understand what they are meant to be looking for in a particular variety or a particular region. But I think there's a step that needs to happen afterwards for people to then realize. Sort of reclaim their subjectivity, right? And, and recognize that, that, yes, there's this kind of idea of archetypes and objective sort of criteria around wine. But then, much more important after that, again, is to regain some sort of personal relationship, some liking or disliking of your own that happens after that. That I think, yeah, it's, what, it's what's necessary to become really enraptured and in love with wine. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I hope that that people find that in by whatever means that that uh, that they can.
0: If if at nothing more than whets their appetite or gets their curiosity peaked and started in the right direction.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. For the longest time, it felt like there was just a um, there was a lack of information and just confusion the whole world of wine for a lot of younger consumers, newer consumers, right, from from developing markets for wine. It was just, all of it was too confusing. And I think we're now getting to the point where so many people who, the, frankly, a, a vast portion of the people who are, are likely to become interested in wine imminently um, in the region have gone through those kinds of programs. And now it's about people kind of developing the, the self-awareness and the confidence to develop a personal Palette, a personal taste right move on from um, from having absorbed all that information and, and doing something personal with it
0: well and um, and even uh, I was mentioning Jason wise in the psalm films even that started that started a real uh, appetite for there seemed there was a, quite a boom of people that got into uh, into the psalm, kind of the psalm world and the psalm scene as well uh after his films you also have a a hand in um education and in and, and wine courses yourself and getting people's aspect yeah. uh, peaked as well
1: mm-hmm. yes um so as as i sort of alluded to i'm i've been involved with the vinidly international academy since 2018 so I'm, I'm on the faculty the two sort of in via 2.0 if you will there's myself and Henry DuVar, whose background is much more um, in, uh, in the entree, um, being a wine director or a psalm. And we were tasked with reworking the Vin International Academy, which has been very much focused on the sort of the finer details of the native grape varieties of Italy, which I think when, when I first took the course, I think was in 2014 or 15. I, while I could see the merit of it, and I thought there was incredible scholarship in gathering all of this information, I just didn't feel that the way that it presented was actually that useful for the market, particularly in Asia with where we all were at that point. And there were a lot of people who went through the program who I think really thought of it as a way to learn more about Italian wine when it was really written as if people already had a great deal of knowledge and affection for Italian wine and were looking to sort of achieve the the next level of of Italian wine expertise. Um, And there simply wasn't that base here in Asia. So I I felt like my role when I came in was to bridge the gap between where a lot of North Americans and Europeans are with Italian wine, which really is that, that level where people want to Learn about you know the genetic development of Malvasia and the diversity within the different Malvasia grapes, and where a lot of my community was, which was can we learn a bit more about Chianti and Valpolicella? Right, and so it was a pretty massive divide. And to me, the the crux of what we were trying to do was fill in all the stories around the the grape varieties. Right, there was a lot of information in the course about genetic history, right? But grapes, you know, like people didn't evolve in a vacuum, right? There were, there were peoples, there were, there was history, there was the development of different cuisines that resulted in the movement of these grapevines along the peninsula, um, coming from all over the place, from, um, from central Europe, from, you know, from the Caucasus. So there, um, Greece. So there was, there was a lot of backstory to fill in and, kind of contemporaneous information about the grape varieties that I thought would would really help people understand in a, in a more lasting and kind of really meaningful way what the significance of these grape varieties is beyond so their genetic characteristics. So that was what I really saw as my responsibility. That and building out the tasting program, which was not initially the the principal focus of of the course when it was first developed, um, and that I thought was so critical because so many of these native grape varieties, you can read about them, but unless you've tasted them, it's sort of, you know, it's just facts on a page. Um, And so we had to develop a framework that allowed people to distinguish between these varieties. I think there's an unfortunate flattening of the way that people perceive Italian native grape varieties in an in international context, particularly the whites, um, which kind of been dismissed by huge swathes of the wine industry as anodyne and, and uninteresting, right? There's there, any number of people who said, you know, if I come across a wine in a blind tasting, that a white wine that doesn't really taste of anything, then I know it's Italian. And I would say that that's just a lack of calibration, right? To the, to the distinctions between these grape varieties. It is more subtle, right, than the difference between Chardonnay and Riesling, um, no doubt about it. But, um, but there are distinctions to be found. And as winemaking becomes more precise and styles start to form, there's kind of a parallel development happening between our community of tasters and the community of winemakers. So I think it's a really exciting time to be involved in Italian wine education.
0: That's, uh, that's fascinating that you say that with the whites as well that's quite interesting yeah that's an as an interesting point um, and especially with, in comparison to French whites as well um, I don't think I don't think the same argument would would hold with French whites because people are almost acutely aware of 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 the differences with with French whites
1: absolutely um and I think because the French have managed to well sorry I, I make this sound like it's <laughs> Like it's cultural colonialism with the wine, it's not really how it developed, right? But as at the if you look at the world of wine today, right, the white grape varieties and the red grape varieties, the principal ones that are planted in new world countries around the world, are that, that basic set of French grape varieties plus Riesling, if you want to attribute that one to Germany. So it's um, it's hard for people who've come up in an education, a wine education system that's so much built on those grape varieties to then reorient and think about the distinctions between Italian grape varieties as being of a similar magnitude, right? I think people who are used to tasting principally, so, you know, so-called New World wines plus French are often, you know, can, can, can typically, um, typically is probably the wrong word, can often find challenges distinguishing between grape varieties like Sangiovese and Nebbiolo. Whereas if you come from an Italian mindset first, that that distinction would seem to be so much wider than Pinot Noir and Grenache, for instance. So it's, uh, I don't know, I think the, the goal with the course is, is to some degree to, to tell a story of Italian exceptionalism, right? It's one of the countries, Spain is one as well, but I think because there's such a dominance of a, a handful of varieties, um, whereas Italy, because of the way that it, it uh, developed as a, as a nation um, and relatively late as a nation has really retained this fractured environment of grape varieties. And it's, it's only now that people are really beginning to see that as a benefit rather than just a headache. Um, you know, too many varieties. I, I, there, there's still, there's still a lot of people within the wine industry who I think just dismiss it Italy for being too complicated. But um, fortunately, the, the consensus seems to be growing that that's a, a strength much more than a weakness.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, I can be, I was someone who grew up with kind of the French as the, as a focus of French is the first mindset beyond our own, mm-hmm. um, you know, BC based, you know, Okanagan based wines. And I certainly French was the next kind of major region that I uh, tackled, shall we say, and I can be guilty of the same kind of concept where I love Sangiovese and I love Nebbiolo, but when you are trying to blind taste and you're trying to, narrow things down and then you start to add in like other you know Barbera and and everything else you know for myself it's it it is uh you do fall back to that um you know you start thinking in comparison to French wines and uh I just I had a a quick tangent to you're talking about Italian whites I got the opportunity to, to taste Pecorino and uh again with this with this wine club I belong to where we get offerings from different countries in different regions so I've been trying to select ones that I, I don't, you know, you, there's not the selection in Canada of certain, uh, certain grapes like Grillo. Grillo and Pecorino were two that I thought, okay. And I'm more of a red wine uh, drinker than white. So I thought, oh, great. These are ones that, you know, I, don't, I won't have a chance to buy here. You'll, you'll never find them, that kind of stuff. And then I went to a, um, a friend's house who was having a chef cater a dinner and he had some pecorino romano cheese. And I said, Well, I've got I've got the grape variety. I'll bring the wine over and we can have it with the cheese. And uh, it was amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a that Pecorino is a really interesting one because there's um it became incredibly trendy. Well, wow, I say incredibly. Oh, everything with Italy, we have to ca- kind of caveat, among a certain group of people. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like Pecorino's taking over from the Sauvignon Blanc worldwide. Um, right. But there was, um, there was a kind of style that evolved, that people started to have this idea, The people who were drinking all this Pecorino had this idea that Pecorino's supposed to taste of sage leaves, right? There's supposed to be this, this slightly green element and there's, a, there's another kind of school of winemakers who are saying, no, actually, that's a fault. That's when the, when the grapes haven't gotten ripe enough. So part of the challenge with being Italian wine you know, lovers, experts, whatever, is that the styles are evolving so much. So it is, I, I do appreciate or understand that it's hard to want to be somebody who's learning about a wine a wine rubric a wine culture as it's evolving so quickly right it's it's quite a lot more reassuring coming back to to the the hong kong collector mindset right where you want to know what you're getting and be sure that you know if you open a um what is a class growth bordeaux you pretty much know how it will evolve at 10 years old at 15 years old at 20 years old right Uh, obviously with climate change there's a bit of a shift happening now in whether these these more recently produced bottles will mimic the the wines of yesteryear but there is a stability there that simply doesn't i you know i'd be lying if i said it existed for a lot of italian grape varieties but uh, conversely, you have this opportunity to be at the cutting edge and learning about regions as they evolve, and and kind of being there, getting in on the ground floor of potentially great new varieties and new regions. So, it's, uh, it's just a different a different setup.
0: So what I, what I should gather from that is I'm trendy and ahead of the curve. That's what I, that's what I get it out of.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You should pat yourself on the back for that one. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Actually, that brings us back. We were talking at one point about um, domestic wine, um, Mm -hmm. because I don't know anything about what's, what's being grown over there. And you mentioned, you'd mentioned some, uh, you'd mentioned, you mentioned actually. I don't think you mentioned what grape varieties are, are being grown out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, so in, in mainland China, um, generally speaking, a lot of the wine regions focus principally, I'd say on Bordeaux blends. It's not dissimilar to the way that an American wine developed, I'd say not in its earliest phase, but probably in its um, latter half of the 20th century phase. Where there's just there is a focus on um, kind of classic blends and classic grape varieties. So Bordeaux blends, Chardonnay. Um, there are some adventurous people growing Pinot. Um, you know they can't. You can't convince winemakers that Pinot won't. Uh, it isn't the sort of um, holy grail. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. So I'd say very much in that phase where. Um, People are trying to create their own version of tried and true styles. Is there any restrictions? Um, there are a few. Oops, sorry, right. go ahead.
0: Oh, sorry. Is there any restrictions? Like, I know in, in, in the Okanagan, we don't have any variety restrictions or anything. But is there anything similar to burgundy or anything? Like, do they have to plant certain things? Or they uh, can they go, can they plant anything they want? Like, in the Okanagan, we can. there's up to 80 varieties. Like, everyone's trying different they're trying whatever they want. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But is there anything in similar there or, or people are trying different
1: things? It's pretty unrestrictive. Um, I mean, there's obviously advice given by the different agricultural universities around which varieties could be focused on. Um, a big issue in a lot of the regions is drought. They tend to, ha- they tend to be irrigated areas. And so there is a, um, or I, I hope to see more and more Um, emphasis on drought-resistant varieties. Um, So there's a variety that's become quite trendy um, in China called Marslan that was developed in the south of France. And it's a cross of Grenache and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, And so it has has more drought resistance and it produces sort of a big, juicy, um, burly, Uh, wine style. And I think there there are some producers very enamored with it, others less so. Um, It has has the potential to be China's sort of um, point of uniqueness, but I think there are other people who are skeptical that it's going to be um, the grape that can be the basis for a world-class wine. And one thing I will say about a lot of Chinese producers is they're incredibly ambitious people aren't really in the game to make okay wine. Um, they're really, um, there's definitely an emphasis, I'd say, on balance, um, particularly on with among smaller producers, on producing fine wine rather than um, producing huge volumes of, kind of mid-market wine.
0: And it's similar, I guess, similar in the, to the Okanagan and BC in that sense as well, where, there's a lot of kind of, uh, executive, um, I can't remember the term, um, but small production and kind of, uh, uh, I've lost the term I was thinking of, but, um, kind of small production, lots of, lots of thought and attention going into wines and very similar where there's like Tiroligo and all these different varieties that people are trying Mm -hmm. that may, might be working, Mm -hmm. might not. And with, with the, with the environment, whether it's, whether it's safe or not, um, whether they're willing to try it uh, and willing to maybe take a hit because there's some wines that seem to be, um, you know, you're planting Pinot and you're making X number of dollars. Whereas you might be planting something else and you're planting Gewürzmina or something, and you're not necessarily getting that same, that same um, financial, the financial side of it. Right. As well. So, but people are being yeah. adventurous out here as well and, and trying different, trying different grapes. And, and like I said, there's, oh, I think there's up to 80 variety, 80 yeah. different varietals out here. So um, they're feeling adventurous out here too. Mm-hmm. But again, the the focus is also not large production. They're the kind of exquisite uh, small batch kind of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that said the, sort of the background of Chinese wine. I remember when I, when I first started working in wine here in Hong Kong, it was kind of dominated by the so-called big three of Chinese wine. It was Great Wall, Cheng Yu, and, um, oh, I'm having a mental blank, this is <laughs> terrible. Um, Great Wall, Cheng Yu, and the other one. It'll come to me. That Basically of the three, Cheng Yu is really the one that's still, um, of the most successful and i think they've done that through a series of different partnerships um by focusing more on high-end wine this is gonna frustrate me what wow. uh, i mean there's dragon seal okay oh wh- wh- Terrible. Wh- you can't put this in <laughs> you can't put it in if um
0: you're saying about um doing also restaurant openings lately as well and, um, I just follow some of your Instagram and stuff and just some of the different, uh, some of the different tastings and different dinners you've been to lately. I was kind of curious. I think I mentioned to you, uh, just kind of had it. I had a question about what, what's like a Tuesday night wine for you. Like what, like, I know, I know you've been doing a few different restaurants and openings and stuff, but is there something that when you're sitting at home on a Tuesday night, is there something that, um, that you're drinking? Like, is it local? Like, is it domestic or is it just something else altogether?
1: um so to be honest people are not china china mainland china is a little bit different people are definitely being encouraged to um both being encouraged and sort of from their own sense of patriotism increasingly consuming quite a bit of domestic wine in hong kong they're actually i haven't looked at the statistics recently but there isn't that much available in the market whenever i do pieces or um podcasts or whatever involving um involving chinese wine it can be quite hard to source the bottles that i want um so it's not it's not what people are drinking on a tuesday night general as a rule um i on my tuesday nights at home i try to not drink to be <laughs> to be honest to try and eke out that little bit of, that little bit of uh alcohol free space just from a from a health standpoint and. Uh, and getting good sleep and, uh, you know, um, trying to limit my consumption uh, more broadly perspective, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not generally opening up that much. Recently, because I, um, I wrote this guide to champagne for Asia Tatler, which is the publication where I am the wine editor, there was a lot of champagne being drunk in this household, um, to be honest, probably exclusively champagne for a couple of weeks there, which was not at all unpleasant. Um, (laughs) not gonna lie i I definitely it just crossed my mind every now and again to uh go to a not a not a hundred percent champagne diet because i couldn't do that to italy but um Mm -hmm. it's certainly certainly being kept in uh in regular rotation in my my drinking uh, to the extent that i do drink at home
0: and that's i mean that's a whole (laughs) we could do a whole other podcast on on there's so many other topics we could hit. You know what I mean? Um, and that, just thinking about um, uh, consumption, and there's been, uh, you know, there's been lots of uh, articles and stuff. And one of my friends wrote a wrote a piece. Uh, she's a wine writer, and she wrote a piece about consumption for the, you know, uh, especially depending if in your circle, if you're going to these winemaker dinners and all these kind of all these wine writers and winemakers and stuff that are consuming four or five six nights a week and at what point is it an occupation and what point is it detrimental and is it like you said is it from the health standpoint right i mean that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation
1: yeah apologies i've just remembered what the third wine was (laughs) so um the the three chinese wines when i first came back to hong kong that were sort of considered the big three were great wall um Great Wall, Zheng Yu, and Dynasty. All of which are still in, in operation, but I think that there's just so much more competition now from, mm. from kind of very high-end players like Aoyun and Long Dai from, um, from um, DBR. Um, for, and also a bunch of boutique producers. I mean, not that they're a boutique, but Grace Vineyards, I think, is one that's been really successful in exporting. There's Silver Heights and Ningxia. Um, the two canaan wines there, there are a lot of a lot of producers with a lot of ambition at the moment and it's kind of an exciting evolving space interesting you and sorry sorry to circle back to that i just didn't no. want to, I didn't want to have this no yeah uh lingering Sarah can't remember what the third <laughs> the third wine in China the uh, third
0: of the big three was no and I mean and I just I literally drew a blank you're talking about champagne and and then giving your Italian Italian uh uh experience and and stuff and I, I drew a blank on Prosecco for a second and I was like what the hell is this sparkling wine right and I was just like oh yeah Prosecco right?
1: <laughs> yeah you know um I, I just, it's never been, it's never been my favorite. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> just, um, I don't know if I can say that in a podcast given uh, my uh, sort of stance on Italy, which is to kind of provide as neutral yeah. a, uh, a an education program as possible. Oh. But it, it's just never been... Um, It's never been my first choice. I see the merit of it. I think it. it, There are some really lovely ones being made, but for me, the appeal with sparkling wine—it's beyond the bubbles. It's really that autolytic flavor and the autolytic texture, Mm -hmm. right? That that creaminess, that oiliness, and slipperiness that comes from the um, from the long contact with the leaves. That just you don't you just don't have those manoproteins and that that same textural. appeal in in prosecco which is much more kind of about fruit aromas and, and mm-hmm. freshness and one and kind of the acid sugar balance not to say that isn't there in champagne as well but um yeah you know i've just i've always been kind of inclined towards savory flavors which is i think why italy appealed to me so much in the first place
0: yeah no, i know i i i don't disagree and and uh it's funny i talked to a gentleman who uh this company called cult wines and they they're mostly, um, they're about, um, wine portfolios and stuff. And we had an interesting, he, he made an interesting point about, about Prosecco and just kind of from the social media marketing side and what they've done. And, you know, Champagne's had basically passive, passive marketing for hundreds and hundreds of years and Prosecco came along and just, just kind of took the world by storm with, you know, in the last, uh you know, five years. Right. And has really kind of taken a bite out of the market, but, but champagne will, will champagne is like those, it's like those luxury cars or whatever. They don't, they don't ever have to really sell themselves. Right. They'll always be, there's always that market because people realize they recognize, they recognize the, everything about it, right. The taste and, and the quality and everything else. Right.
1: I mean, they're just doing different things, right? There's champagne, you know, like a a non-vintage champagne can take six or seven years to make if you count the reserve wines, you know, going back to the earliest reserve wine, whereas Prosecco is very much something that's produced quickly, celebrates the fresh fruit, right? It's just, and it's less expensive to produce, right, because there's less capital tie-up. It's, I, I think it's just, it just, they just do different things. And the price on some level <laughs> probably get in trouble for this saying this too, but on some level it's kind of incidental or logical, right? That, that it should cost more to make a wine that takes longer to make and less for a wine that's, that's less time consuming and fundamentally less costly to make. And that's fine. But it shouldn't really be a value judgment.
0: I, I guess also there there also is a, a trend over the last few years with with a lot more ready to consume wines as well right I mean we could get into a whole conversation about that as well like average consumption of wines the minute the availability in the liquor store and and stuff that's ready to consume people don't want to sit on on wines they don't want to wait for wines to age and there's there's a whole conversation to be said about that
1: yeah definitely it's I, I keep I keep feeling sort of this this discomfort around around talking about wine this way because I do um I do exist in the real world as well, but just in the in the Hong Kong environment where I am, where I'm around a lot of wine collectors, I just people the the kind of you know stored store to table in 24 hours is so kind of antithetical or, or very different from what so many of the people in my wine circles are doing mm. that it feels like in my tiny little slice of the world that yeah, of course people people will lay down wine. You know, people, friends of mine who are champagne collectors, even with non-vintage champagne, they'll put it in their cellar for three to five years because they like the, the effect of time um, in integrating the acidity and sort of rounding out the hard edges so I guess it, it really comes down to uh, people's individual experience I, I know that that what I'm seeing is not representative of the wine market as a whole
0: well and and means. I I know I, I agree and I think also perhaps I'm also I also speak from from what I see on the west coast and but I don't disagree that people like it depends it also depends on your own um whether you, yeah, whether you are laying stuff down, whether, what your, what your knowledge base is, whether you, you recognize that something needs to be, if you're buying something that's ready to consume or whether you're buying something that also needs to be laid down, like I'll buy, I'll buy both. I'll buy wines that um, can be consumed basically right away or I'll, and I'll, I'll buy some stuff and I know that I'm going to have to wait, <laughs> wait it out for a while. And um, it depends, I guess, what your what your personal um where you are in the wine world in the sense of um as a consumer whether you are willing to, to wait on something or not and um or whether like you said with the champagne whether you should be waiting on it and you really should be waiting on something and and patience that's the problem people aren't patient anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there definitely is that. One of the things that I used to love in the Hong Kong market was that there was a lot of affordable aged wine
0: mm. from
1: regions that were not um, known for producing long aging bottles, <laughs> which is which is a sort of roundabout way of saying that people would buy wine from regions that I think they thought might become up and coming collectibles and then forgot about them in their cellars for people five or 10 years. And then we're trying to divest themselves of them. So you could find, you could find older New Zealand wine. It was, uh, you know, which is, which is quite hard to find in New Zealand itself. Um, and, and actually it, now, now that sort of the word is out, I'm finding that people, you know, people are not willing to part with their bottles for, for low sums anymore, but they definitely, I'd say three to five years ago, you could find Barolo from the fifties, sixties, seventies for under a hundred and that was fun because then people could take a punt. Um, you know, it, sorry, not like every day. This was not people's Wednesday night wine necessarily. But if if somebody wanted the ability to see what an aged Barola was like, it wasn't going to cost them that month's rent. And those wines are harder to find now. We have, um, because of all these kind of logistics issues, there's just less stock coming into the market. And so I feel... Less confident than I used to telling younger people who are getting into wine. Yeah You can find these amazing aged wines on the market and just give them a try Um, It's really something that people have to think about right if it's a a $300 investment rather than a $100 investment
0: And 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 source like you said sourcing it out as well like um, I've got my my 50th birthday coming up and you know, I would love to have a uh, You know a a 1972-73 wine but to source it out, as well. I and last year the at the Vancouver Wine Festival, um, there was a a table that had um, uh, H. Bordeaux. That was I think it was in the twenty to thirty year range. But mm-hmm. you know you got some samples and you got some you know you got some tasting you know you got a few a few little samples. Um, but that was pretty much hard to come by for sure.
1: Yeah, and um, I guess that's that's the inevitable consequence of more people getting into wine. So I suppose I should be pleased, but um, yeah, it is. The, there's this sort of wistful side that's like I can remember, I can remember when Viña Tondonia aged for 20, 30 years was affordable, and now you know, prices have gone through the roof of uh, sort of everything that's kind of lifestyle and luxurious. People just because they can't travel, these are these are the things that people are are stocking up on. hmm
0: Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Um, it was it was great to chat, and I had a really really fun fun time.
0: I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests. Friends of the vine dot Take care. Have a glass for me.
1: Is it a video podcast or it's,
0: it's audio, but I might okay. I might try and put a little a video, uh, video. You'll do like a little soundbite video. Type yeah, thing. yeah. so It's a bummer I wasn't naked. I sh- we should have thought of that before. Thought of that. <laughs>